Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. This Sunday in the Revised Common Lectionary is the last Sunday after the Epiphany or Transfiguration Sunday. From year to year, there may be fewer or more weeks between the Epiphany and Lent beginning. That's because the date of Easter moves. Easter is always the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal or spring equinox. So this is almost the earliest that Lent could possibly begin. It could be a a week or so earlier. So this week we come up on the last Sunday after the Epiphany and during this calendar year. We're reading 2 Kings 2 verses 1 through 12, Psalm 50 verses 1 through 6, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6, and Mark 9, 2 through 9. The second Kings passage is the passing of the torch from Elijah to Elisha. These kinds of passages are always pretty moving as we see the successor chosen, the one to continue the work that was being done. A couple of important cities are mentioned in here. Um, Gilgal is one of the places that they travel through. Gilgal is where Abraham built an altar to God in Genesis 12. It's where Jacob saw the ladder um, to heaven and had his wrestling match. It was a prominent shrine during the period of the judges, and it became one of the major places of worship established by King Jeroboam when the northern tribes um, divided away from Davidic rule and Israel became two countries. It was also the home to a prophet, to a company of prophets, um, as we see. The other city mentioned is Jericho. Now, Jericho was a strategic point if you were moving from the Transjordan area into the highlands of Judah or coming down from Judah back into the area of the Transjordan. We, of course, know it because it was the city of Jericho where the Israelites marched around the walls and played their trumpets and the walls came tumbling down. After its destruction um, by the invading Israelites in that episode, it lays unoccupied for about four centuries. So 400 years of it being uninhabited and in rubble before it is rebuilt in the time of Elijah and Elisha. And it too is a place where a company of prophets dwells. We see a lot of parallels between this story and some others. Um, Elisha refuses to leave his mentor Elijah. Three times Elijah tries to send him away and he says, I will not leave you. It sounds a little bit like that wrestling match that Jacob had where he will not release um, the one with whom he wrestles. I will not let you go until you bless me. There's also a crossing over on dry land, which is a little reminiscent of Moses before Elijah, who parted the Red Sea and they, the Israelites crossed over on dry land. Elijah causes the water to part and he and Elisha cross over on the dry land. Elisha asks for a double portion of blessing, of anointing to be a prophet following Elijah. Now, 
many times we hear this taught as he wanted to be an even greater prophet. He wanted um, more of God, and certainly he does. He wants to follow. But let's also remember that the heir in any estate in this time received a double portion. As the inheritance was divided out, it was usually the oldest son, the appropriate heir, who got twice what everybody else got. So what I hear Elisha doing is saying, I want to be your true and legitimate heir. I want to continue the prophetic work that you have done to inherit your call, your blessing, your anointing to do the work and continue the work that you have done. And when Elijah is finally taken up, we see the grief with which Elijah, Elisha, remembers his mentor passing, and he tears his clothes into two pieces. It was very common to tear your clothes as a sign of mourning, but I can't help but see a little bit of a parallel between him tearing his clothes in two and having asked for two or a double portion of the anointing. We do see Elijah and Moses held together in many of the scenes when Jesus is transfigured, which is one of the reasons this comes up in this reading, um, is part of the Revised Common Lectionary. At Transfiguration Sunday, we have the um, Peter offering to build booths for Elijah and Moses. Moses represents the law. He was the one who received the tablets with the law on it. Elijah represents the pinnacle of the prophets. So they stand for the law and the prophets, which guided the Old Testament. And then Jesus becomes the fulfillment of that. And so Jesus becomes the fullest revelation of God that we have. Notice that Elijah is taken up without dying. And that's how the hope arose that Elijah could come back. If he was free of time's restraints and free of the bonds of death, maybe he could come and go. At the Passover, they set a place for Elijah and leave a door open. And there is an interpretation of end times and of the coming of Christ that we will see Elijah um, coming back. So it's a really interesting story to see as the mantle is passed on from Elijah to Elisha. It's easy to get those two names confused. You've heard me stumble over them several times today. But it's also interesting to consider how ministries get passed on, how they continue, how they continue beyond a founder, beyond um, a pastor, particularly a pastor who represents a high watermark in the history of a congregation, how we continue things that aren't just specific to a person, but are specific to a call, to a, a will of God to see happen. And in our Second Kings passage, we see how Elijah's ministry continues with Elisha. Okay, so we're also reading Psalm 50, verses 1 through 6. These verses are not the entirety of the psalm. We've only read a portion of them. Stephen Cook, who is a professor professor of Old Testament at Virginia Theological Seminary, as he reflects on these, notices that in the verses we're not reading, it talks about God not being pleased with our just going through the rituals, just going through the motions of something. That all too often the Israelites journeyed to Jerusalem for one of their pilgrimages, for one of their festivals, 
and they didn't find the event life-changing. All too often, they would just go through the motions, uh, perform the rites, um, go through the ceremonies, and depart, figuring that God was pleased um, because they had done what they were told to do, and that Psalm 50 actually will have none of that. We'll have none of just going through the motions. We must connect with God. Our heart must connect with what we're doing. And we must remember who God is, um, that God is the mighty one who summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same. Prayer and worship are responses to God by which we orient and reorient ourselves toward God, toward that which is of ultimate worth, toward that what actually matters. And they are how we open ourselves um, to lining up with what truly matters, which is pleasing God and living lives that are pleasing to God. We don't worship in order to get something out of it. We worship so that our lives can be more fully aligned with the God whom we serve and follow. And so it moves from awe to ought, from wonder and amazement at the realization of who God is to behavior and what we ought and should and must be doing. Um, So the Psalms remind us once again who God is and who we are because of God. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 through 6 is our New Testament reading. Paul uses some of the most interesting metaphors as he tries to talk to people and explain how we follow Christ, how we fit into the ongoing history of God's interaction with people. He's going to talk about veils in this, about seeing and understanding and about light. I remember as we read through the Gospels that Jesus said, I am the light. So Jesus said that he was the light. Jesus also says, you are the light, meaning we as disciples, that we are the light. And then Paul seems to pick up on this in verse 6. For it is God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, who is the light, now lives in us. And that light shines through us. That's how we become the light of the world. And it shines into the darkness that is around us. We also see that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus frames all of how Paul understands the Christian life. Paul declares that Jesus is Lord, and that means for him, seeing the death and resurrection of Jesus as a paradigm for the transformation that we experience as we follow Christ. There is an age of suffering, which was the cross, followed by a new world or resurrection, and that's what we do. We suffer in our sin until we are resurrected into a new being to follow Christ, and then we continue to carry our cross in this world until we are resurrected into the ultimate salvation and fullness of God, either following our death or at Christ's second coming. So Paul continues to expound on how he understands the gospel, and he really advocates for what we might call a holy discomfort. That's the word that um, Ronald Allen uses as he reflects on this. 
there have been some super apostles, as he calls them, who comes to the Corinthians and tries to create a different religious experience. Paul has preached one gospel to them, and now someone is preaching something else, that living a Christian life shouldn't just mean being faithful, even if it means suffering, following Christ, being who God called us to be. But these super apostles, um, Ronald Allen believes, is saying that the experience we have with God is a religious experience that causes us to feel good within ourselves, to have an ecstatic emotion, but that doesn't really have any social change. They could continue to live as they had. They could do all the things they had done before. There was no sacrifice, no um, obedience through giving up, avoiding, or choosing to do new things, but that following Christ should just be an ecstatic, emotional, religious experience. Um, And these super apostles were advocating that we escape the present social setting by this experience of Jesus, but that we don't have to fight for anything else in the world. In other words, it's all about you and how you feel and how you experience it. And Paul envisions life as a disciple of Jesus Christ as being one willing to not always feel good, but to seek the transformation of the world through Christ. That feels very relevant to us and how we see the gospel as Methodist Christians. And by the way, I keep referring to Ronald Allen without telling you much about him because I'm trying to remember as I'm sitting here now who he is. I believe he is a professor of New Testament um, at a seminary in Indiana, maybe. Um, I'm pretty sure it's New Testament because this is his specialty area. But his take on this passage reminded me of us now in our situations Far too many people expect church to be um, an emotional, ecstatic experience that they have on Sunday mornings that doesn't impact the rest of their life throughout the week, and they want their faith to make them feel good. There's this whole prosperity gospel that has been a burr in my saddle for a number of years now. The idea that if we follow Christ and we are right with the Lord, that we are healthy, We are wealthy and we are wise, that all in life goes well for us when we are right with God, and that if we are not experiencing health or wellness or um, good, easy times, that it means we're not right with God, that either we don't have enough faith or um, we have some sin that needs to be confessed and corrected. Certainly, we do sometimes experience negative consequences if we are embracing sin and not repenting of it. If we are not trusting God to lead us, it can be uncomfortable. But that's not always the reason for the discomfort. Sometimes God calls us to places of discomfort for a season and to grow. And sometimes our experience of worship on Sundays will not leave us feeling like we've been to a pep rally. Sometimes it will call us to correction. Sometimes it will call us to mourn um, and repent of things that we have been doing or experiencing. Sometimes worship should be a corporate lament for our world, 
for our country, for our congregation. So everything about faithfulness to God doesn't necessarily feel good, and that doesn't mean it's not faithful. And if we are always pursuing the feel good, we may be pursuing the feeling more than we are pursuing God. Okay, let's talk about the Mark passage, Mark 9, verses 2 through 9. This is the actual transfiguration event. Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. They go up onto a mountain where Christ is transfigured. He changes before them, and they get a glimpse of his heavenly glory. And then there with him is Elijah and Moses, as we've said, maybe representing the law and the prophets and now the fulfillment of both being there together. But also those who knew what it meant to follow God, um, to live lives of um, close connection to God, who would come and give him some encouragement, some help as he faces these final days of his earthly mission. And so we see this great transformation, this transfiguration happening. It's interesting that the transfiguration lies almost exactly halfway between Mark's capturing of Jesus' baptism and of Mark's capturing Jesus' resurrection. So it's like these are three grand milestones among which the rest of the story unfolds. Jesus is baptized and begins his ministry. He is transfigured to remind us who he is again, like we were reminded at his baptism when the heavens opened. And then at his resurrection, we are reminded who he is. So it's like a refrain that keeps saying, remember who this Jesus is. Remember who Christ is. There are also some things in Scripture that often echo other parts that could just remind us. The white garments, the transfiguration of Jesus and seeing his, him as white as white garments reminds me of a courtroom scene in the book of Daniel. Um, where the earthly empires are put on trial and the martyrs um, have white garments in the book of Revelation. There's appearance of a young man at the tomb at Jesus' resurrection who is in white. And then, of course, we have Elijah and Moses, the forerunners who also beheld the glory of God on mountains during their times of trial and difficulty and who, according to Jewish tradition, both ascended to heaven before their deaths. And so we are reminded again of Jesus' mission, his identity, and his destiny um, in correlation with theirs, and reminded of it here as the final Sunday before we begin this period of suffering and sacrifice that leads us to the resurrection. So it seems there's a pattern of We need to keep a clear vision of who God is and of who God calls us to be and then be willing to walk through our times of um, suffering, sacrifice, of carrying our cross um, so that we remember the resurrection that came in Jesus Christ and that comes to us because of Jesus Christ. These are my thoughts on this last Sunday after the Epiphany, Transfiguration Sunday. I look forward to entering Lent with you beginning next week.